Let's continue to worship together as God's people. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of First Peter? We'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, through five. hear the word of our God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we come this morning as your people, and we rise up and we call you blessed. For who is like you, O oh God? A God who gives hope to rebels, a God who brings life to the dead. And Father, we rise up this morning and we hope in you. We settle our souls upon you and we grasp you and we grasp hold of your promises. We sing with the psalmist, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. And we reassure ourselves, saying, Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And we eagerly await for you, O God, for you will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You are so good to us, Father. You have given us your Son, and we hope in his death and his resurrection. You have poured your spirit out upon us, working hope in our hearts. You've given us your word to instruct us and guide us. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you work hope in us through your words? Would your spirit come and, and penetrate our hearts with these words? Would you convict us afresh of the truth of the scriptures? The truth of who you are, your character, your, your mighty deeds, what your son has accomplished, and what you have stored up for all your people. Oh, Father, assure our hearts this morning and cause us to hope in you, in you alone. So, Father, would you do this this morning for your eternal glory and for our good, we pray in your son's blessed name. Amen. So, in the last six weeks, there's a, a thread of logic running throughout the, the sermons and preaching. And we have been doing, in the last six weeks, the, the work of a careful 
builder, and a careful builder builds the foundation, lays the foundation before constructing the structure. And so we have done the work of a a careful builder, first by laying the foundation, which is the gospel of the Son of God. And, And we looked at the gospel of the Son of God through the lens of the middle part of the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed has revealed the the work, the identity, the labor, the exaltation of the Son. We have moved from Christ's humiliation, his taking flesh and doing the labor of a redeemer, a mediator, to his exaltation as a Son of God in power. We have looked at his cross and his resurrection. And we have also seen how the, the gospel comes to us and is made beneficial to us in our midst through the means of grace through things like preaching and prayer and the sacraments. God employs these as tools of the gospel. And these things like preaching, prayer, and sacraments lead us to see and treasure and know Jesus Christ. And so we want to continue on this thread and we want to continue to do the work of a careful builder. And we can do this by asking a few questions. We can ask, what is God's aim in this building project? What does this grand structure look like? And we can ask important theological questions as well. What has the gospel accomplished for the people of God? And what is God's aim to bring about through preaching, prayer, and the sacraments in his people? And this morning we lit the first Advent candle. We're looking forward, we're remembering the coming of Jesus with expectation and hope. And in connection with the Advent season, we can ask, what has the coming of Christ accomplished among us? So an answer that we want to explore this week and in the next two weeks is a threefold cord that cannot be broken. What is God doing in the midst of his people through all of these things? He's making us a people of faith, a people of hope, a people of love. And so this morning we take up the first strand of this threefold cord, and we want to look at hope, blessed fruit of the Spirit in our midst, hope. We become a people that hope in God. And so we need to chart out a preliminary definition of what hope is according to the Scriptures. And we can just offer this definition right away. Hope is grasping firmly the promises of God despite all opposition, trouble, or present circumstances. Hope is a firm understanding that God will indeed come through on all of his promises. Hope flows from the knowledge of God that has broken into our souls and it builds confidence in God that he will indeed act according to his promise and according to his character. This attitude, this posture of hope is exhibited throughout the scriptures. Psalm 46 verses 1 through 3 help us along the way of defining and understanding hope. The psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The psalmist is leading us here in these verses. He's leading us into hope. Hope, according to the psalmist, is not this this vague wish. It's not a premonition of better things to come. 
nor is it this positive vibe rising up within the soul. The psalmist here in, in chapter 46, despite all the opposition before him, his troubling surroundings, and all that clouds his present circumstances, firmly grasps hold of God and his promises. We see in the, in the life of the psalmist, the truth of God and the truth of his word has flooded into the psalmist's soul. And from that knowledge, hope comes. And he's convicted that God will come through on all of his promises. He's convicted that God will act according to his nature, who he truly is. And the psalmist declares that though the earth unravel and deconstruct around him, though the fairy foundations of creation shake, he will not fear. And so we can see the psalmist doing the, the necessary work of hope in these verses. Despite his circumstances, he lashes himself to God and the promise. And he assures his soul with hope. He says to himself, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So we can keep this in mind as we come to the letter of First Peter. And when we come to the letter of First Peter, we see the theme of hope laced throughout this epistle. And Peter comes here and he's helping these churches under his care. And we see in this letter that Peter is a helper of hope. Peter is an apostle of the Lord Jesus and he's also a fellow elder, a fellow pastor of the people of God. And as an elder, pastor, apostle, he is well aware of the many troubles and fears that plague the people of God. He knows that these churches that are under his care, these followers of Jesus, are experiencing many grievous trials in their lives. He knows of the suffering and insult and shame that these people are sharing in due to the fact that they have claimed the Lord Jesus as Lord. And Peter knows of the conditions of the church. He knows the friction and pain that occurs within the body of Christ due to sin. And we see in 1 Peter that, that Peter mentions things like malice and deceit and envy and slander amidst the church. And even more than this, Peter knows of the church's great adversary, an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And Peter knows intimately how the human heart can work in the midst of all of these troubles, all of these temptations, all of these trials how we can begin to doubt the, the goodness of God when the fiery trial draws near to us. How we can begin to question whether the promises of God are true. Can these be true? How our souls can be thrown into such a panic and trouble in suffering. For Peter himself experienced all of these things. Peter himself experienced the sifting of Satan. We can remember the gospel story in the troubles that Peter went through. He experienced the roaring lion seeking someone to devour firsthand. For Peter himself denied the Lord Jesus three times. Peter experienced the clouds of doubt that roll in to the soul. He experienced the, the hard and bitter conflict. He wept the tears. And Peter as one who experienced these trials and temptations... Peter as a man who, who gave up hope when suffering drew near to him. Peter as a man who grievously sinned against the Lord Jesus but not by denying him three times. 
Peter, a man who experienced the pardoning grace and mercy and restoration of Jesus. Peter, as a man who was filled by the Spirit to preach Jesus on Pentecost and to endure much suffering for the sake of the name, is a man who's especially fit to help others hope. He's experienced it all. He's experienced suffering and trial and failure, and he knows how our hearts work in the midst of all of these things. And even more importantly, he knows how God's grace works in the midst of all of these things. So in light of this, Peter, in this letter that he writes to these churches, works and labors for the hope of his people. He writes that his hearers might firmly grasp hold of God and the promise. He exhorts them so that while they endure suffering, trials, and tribulations, they might look up and look out and be sustained by the promise-keeping God. He teaches his people so that his hearers, might, his hearers' minds would be flooded with the life-giving knowledge of God. And he reveals the character of God over and over again so that his mighty works would be firmly placed within our hearts. And he reminds, he reminds so often so that our confidence in God would remain despite our circumstances. And Peter's aim is the same of the psalmist in Psalm 46, that his people might rise up and say, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. And as we approach Peter's words, written some 2,000 years ago, this is our aim as well, that our hearts would be filled with hope, that we would lash ourselves to this God And this only can happen, hope only arises in our souls when we see God for who he is, when we know his character, when we hear his gracious promises, and when his glorious works are revealed before us. And then and only then will we rise up and say with the psalmist, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So let's look into Peter's words this morning. And Peter brings his people, he brings us to see the source of hope right away in his letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 3, and hear what Peter says. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we need to go back to our initial definition this morning, and we need a reason from it. If hope is grasping firmly the promises of God, if hope is a firm conviction that God will come through on all of his promises despite circumstances, we have to say then that hope must be supernaturally brought about in the human heart. Hope must only come from the powerful working of God. We have to ask, why must this be? Why must hope be supernaturally brought to us? The answer is because in sin, we are a people who naturally distrust God. In sin, our understanding has become darkened and distorted. We will not hope in God. We will not believe in his promises when we're in sin. Instead, we are a people who run from him. The scriptures call us a people alienated and hostile in mind towards God. And we are like our first parents so much, Adam and Eve. 
In light of our guilt and our shame due to sin, we dress ourselves up in the finest of fig leaves that we can find in the garden, and we hide ourselves from the presence of God in the garden behind any trees we can find. We are a people who try to manufacture our own hopes. We, like our first parents, grab whatever is at our disposal and latch on to thinking that these perhaps might give me some hope. We grab hold of careers. Perhaps this job will fulfill me. We latch hold of family. We latch hold of the possibility of perhaps a new relationship. Or perhaps my sports team, even how silly that seems. We look to them for hope. Maybe a new home, maybe this education. If I finally get it, this will give me hope for my life. We latch on to these things thinking that these things might give us some measure of hope. But we have to see in sin all our inventions of hope. Everything we grasp to is devoid of God and his promises. All our inventions of hope, just like our first parents, when we really consider them, they're, they're shabby and they're, they're shameful. The scriptures speak to us of our condition outside of Christ Jesus. Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, and he reminds the Ephesians of who they once were. He says, Remember that you, were, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Having no hope without God in the world. So what do we need Uh, What we need then and what Peter reveals to us in verse 3 is an invasion of the blessed God into this world, into our hearts, into our lives. And this is exactly what God has mercifully done. God has invaded our world and he has stripped us bare of our silly and shabby hopes. He takes away our manufactured hopes, all these things we cling to for life. He takes away our dressing of fig leaves. And then, as only God can do, as this blessed God does, he comes to us and begets new life into a living and true hope. And Peter brings faithfully his people, and he brings us this morning to see our God, the author of hope. And as we look at verse 3 this morning, in God's authorship of hope, we need to notice a few particulars about how God does this. First of all, when we look at verse 3, we have to insist that, that hope and new birth is solely the work of God. It is His work and His work alone. We as a people do not move towards God in hope till God has moved towards us. And Peter just underlines the, the creative force of hope. He says, He has caused us. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Just as God created all things in the beginning out of nothing by his word, we can go back to Genesis chapter 1 and reminisce. Genesis chapter 1 reveals the great creative power of God and his word. We hear one voice in Genesis chapter 1 speaking, and when that voice commands, matters created. And when that voice directs, all reality obeys and conforms to this God's will. God says, let there be light, and there is light God says, let the waters be separated, and they're separated. He says, let the waters be gathered, and they're gathered. He says, let dry land appear, and dry land appears. 
And in the same way, with the same creative force and power, God creates new creation in a people who are lost in sins. He imparts life to those who are dead in their sins. He brings light where there's only darkness. And there's this, this glorious symmetry between the first creation and the second. There's this glorious resemblance we see between God's works. God is the author and initiator of old creation and new. And both old creation and new creation stem from the powerful working of God's word. And Peter, as he teaches his people about hope, he traces hope back to its source. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter reasons, he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Peter teaches us, hope is brought forth in our hearts through the powerful word of God. And this is what the scriptures teach from beginning to end. Hope springs only new life. New people spring only from the sovereign working of God. Salvation is of God. And Peter this morning in verse 3 is drawing, I think, on the prophet Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 27. And Ezekiel underscores that God is the worker of our redemption and God alone. Note carefully in how Ezekiel talks about how the Lord works salvation in our midst. We can ask Ezekiel, we can ask the Lord in these verses, who brings new life to pass? And the Lord answers definitively. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If we are to have any hope in this life, we need the God of I will. The God who draws near and takes the people from the nations. The God who draws near and sprinkles clean water on us. The God who draws near and gives us a new heart and a new spirit. The God who draws near and and removes the heart of stone, the heart of flesh. We need this God who places his spirit within us to cause us to walk in his rules. And this is what God must do and work and will amongst us if we are to hope in him and his promises. We need this God who wills, this God who works. Secondly, we can continue and we must continue to burrow into Peter's words in verse 3. For when we look at the mighty working of God in his word for our salvation, we see that our hope flows directly from the character of God. We as a people can have hope because of who God is. And Peter ties our hope directly to the character of God, his great mercy. He brings us to the wellspring of hope, the character of God, and he points us, to, points us and he, he grounds all of what he's saying in this. This all happens to you because of the great mercy of God. So this morning, we can reason and worship every gospel good we've experienced throughout our entire lives comes to us solely on account of God's mercy and God's mercy alone. 
and every gospel good and every gospel privilege which we enjoy presently, even now, as we rejoice in hope, is due to God's mercy alone. And we can look towards the, the future, the coming ages, and every gospel privilege, every gospel hope that we, that we will share in comes to us solely by God's mercy and God's mercy alone. So we can say with gladness this morning, God's mercy is at root of the gospel and at root of our hope. For in the gospel, we behold a God who does not give us what we deserve. We come to a God who acts disproportionately to how we have acted towards him and others. We come to a God who we've committed treason against and he forgives us of our trespasses. We come to this God and we have incurred great debt in our sin and he absolves us of it all. So we must say with joy and gladness, our salvation, our hope, our new birth only exists because of the powerful working of God's word and it's due to his mercy and his mercy alone. We can trace it to no other source, no other reason but to God's mercy. And so believers, as we look in our own lives, as we consider our fellow brothers and sisters who God has placed in this fellowship with us, every time we confidently lay hold of God, every time we hope in God, it's because of God's mercy working in our midst. And every time we look out and see another brother or sister expressing hope, looking to and grasping firmly the promises of God, we can, we can know that God is working powerfully in our midst, that God's mercy is active and alive. We know God is at work when people hope in him. So Peter works for our hope. He encourages us in hope by bringing us to see the source and wellspring of hope, God himself, his character. And Peter does not only want to encourage us in hope, but he also wants to shape our hope this morning. And Peter works as a potter of clay. He is crafting and shaping hope before our eyes. And as we travel through his words this morning in 1 Peter, as we travel through his logic, we can see that hope takes a shape. The longer the lump of clay spins on the potter's wheel, the longer the potter with his strong and able hands works the clay, the more definitive that lump of clay becomes. And after hard work, after toil, after labor, we can finally see the potter's work come to fruition. We can see that this lump of clay has become something useful for us. We can see after the potter's work that this lump of clay has become something good for us. We could even say this morning something beautiful. And Peter wants us to see the shape and definition of our hope this morning because a lump of clay does us no good. He does not want us hoping about an abstract and blissful state. He wants us to be able to lay hold of the hope that we have. He wants us to be able to firmly grasp hope with our hands. Peter writes in chapter 3, verse 15, he wants us to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter wants us to be able to make a defense, be able to give reason for hope. And if we're going to be able to make a defense and give reason, we have to know what our hope is. We have to be able to firmly grasp it. We have to be able to hold it. So what is, this Peter, what is this hope Peter brings us to? 
What is this hope that he's carefully shaping before us? And Peter explains this hope in verse 3. We can look there again. He says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What Peter is doing here is is a bit subtle, but it's important. Peter teaches us here that the very means by which hope is brought to us shapes and informs the hope we have. The hope bringer shapes the substance of hope. So we can say that again just so we don't lose it. Peter teaches us that the one who brings us hope is the one who shapes hope itself. So we need to unpack this a bit. We need to unpack verse 3. And we can do this by questioning Peter. What do you mean, Peter, when you say this? So we can ask Peter, how has hope been brought to us? And he answers, the hope has, been, hope has come to us. It has broken into our world and our hearts through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter consciously ties the mercy of God in our new life to the historical work of Jesus. Peter teaches God's mercy comes packaged to us in Christ. And he reveals our new lives begin with the resurrection of Jesus. There's this great mystery. that when God gives us faith and we look unto Christ, we are united Christ Jesus in both his death and his resurrection. We share in these historical events. And so our new life comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We can continue and we need to press on Peter more. So Jesus has brought us hope through his resurrection. We have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus. But Peter, how does this resurrected Jesus shape and inform the content of hope itself? We can find the answer in Peter, Peter's little phrase he uses. He says, you are born again to what? A living hope. We can just let that little phrase, that powerful phrase, turn over in our minds. What a strange way to describe hope. How can hope be alive? How can hope live? And the answer is this. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Our hope is living because it rests upon a Savior who has been resurrected from the grave. The hope that we have is not an unusable and ugly piece of clay, It is not a vague pie in the sky, wishful thinking. It is not this premonition we have that just better things are going to come to us. No, the hope we have is founded upon a living, a breathing, a thinking, an acting, a loving, risen, resurrected Savior. And Peter brings definite shape to the hope we have by grounding it in Jesus. And the hope that we have and have been called to, that we have been born into, is that we will share in all that Jesus is for us. We will taste fully of his resurrection from the dead. We have tasted it in part now. But this hope is that we will taste it in fullness, in full measure. We will be completely delivered from the evil age. That we will know the fullness of God's kingdom and the delight of being in his kingdom. That we will see clearly Christ's wonderful face. That we will know the glories of his and our inheritance. And Peter brings us to see the the blessed hope we have. And it's shaped by Jesus and all that Jesus stands for. And believers this morning, we can hope 
confidently this morning because Jesus' resurrection stands as a sure sign of hope for us. God has faithfully answered all of his promises to Jesus. The risen Christ stands before us as a sure sign of God's trustworthiness. The risen Jesus stands before us as a, a sure proof that God's word is indeed good for us. And as we encounter suffering, which we all do, as we endure pain, as we even draw near to death, the risen Jesus stands before us and he attests to us, God will answer all of his promises. God will honor his words. Jesus, the living Jesus, the risen Jesus, is what makes our hope living. So Peter teaches us this morning, God is the author of hope. He is the source And this hope has been delivered to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not only has it been delivered to us by Jesus, but Jesus is the shape of our hope and all that Jesus stands for. And Peter keeps laboring for our hope this morning in this passage. Peter labors to strengthen our hands and our grip upon God and his promise. And he writes in verse 4, look there. Peter says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We can go back to this fact that Peter understands us well. He's a pastor, he's an elder, he's a fellow sufferer. And he knows we live in a world full of uncertainty. He knows we live in a world that we, we do not know what tomorrow holds for us, whether we're going to be alive or we're going to be dead, whether we're going to be healthy or we're going to be sick. We live in a world where we we don't know what's going to become of our goods. We labor so hard for goods. And Jesus tells us that moths and rust destroy our earthly treasures. Psalm 103 comes to us and just highlights the brevity of our lives. The psalmist says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. In the book of James reasons with us, James tells us, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. When we take the scriptures at a whole this morning, they teach us that we will not and cannot cannot find lasting hope in the things of this present age, this present world. Our treasures, what becomes of them? They rust, they're corrupted. What happens to our strength? It fades away. What happens to our lives? They vanish like a mist. And Peter, knowing all of this and how the scriptures speak and reasons, strengthens our grip on the promises of God. He works for our hope by seeking to raise our vision from the temporary things of our lives to see our inheritance. In verse 4, it says, if Peter is our faithful friend and we're walking down this path and and our, our vision is looking down, and if we keep looking down at our feet as we walk, we're going to trip over something and fall. And Peter, as a faithful friend, comes along to us and he grabs hold of our chin and he thrusts our chin upward. He lifts our gaze up so that we might see. And this work is what we desperately need. We are so prone to look down in this life. We are so prone to be troubled by all that happens to us, all of our circumstances. We're so prone to be consumed by the present day. 
And Peter works by contrasting our hope, our present worldly condition, with our secure hope. He tells us our hope is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And he reasons with us. Though our riches leave us, our inheritance is permanent. He tells us though our health fades, and it will fade, the inheritance stands immovable. And though the earth gives way and the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, Peter tells us this inheritance is strong and solid. As we consider Peter's words this morning, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, we can ask Peter, what, what makes this inheritance so secure, so strong, so permanent? How is it that this hope cannot fade and cannot change and cannot wither? And Peter tells us, Our inheritance is so secure because it's kept under the watchful care of an eternal, never-changing, all-powerful God. Peter gives us no reason to doubt. There is no risk with our inheritance because it is not exposed to dangers, because it is kept securely and firmly in God's hands. We as a people can grasp firmly of the promises of God because our God has grasped firmly His promises. We can grasp because God has grasped himself. John Calvin is helpful at this point as he talks about verse 4 and he comments on the passage. He writes of verse 4, It is if the Lord Jesus addresses us personally from heaven and says, Behold, your salvation is in my hand and is kept for you. And I think Calvin's on the right track. And, and this is what Jesus does to each one of his people. The Lord Jesus is a gracious and sweet Savior, and he sustains us and nourishes our hope. And he draws near to us when our souls are troubled and in distress and suffering. And he says to us, as he says in John 10, 28, I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. And Jesus whispers to us when we doubt and when our spirits are perplexed and we can't see because of the clouds. He assures us of his Father. He says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. So Peter works to lift our gaze up. So believer, this morning, lift your eyes up and see. Your inheritance is secure and immovable. Look past your peasant, present troubles. For your hope, your inheritance is kept by, in heaven by the one who said, no one will snatch them out of my hands. Your hope is secured by the God of whom Jesus speaks, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. That is our hope, and this is what makes our hope secure. A great and unchanging, eternal God. So as we close this morning and reflect on Peter's words, my prayer for you, my prayer for myself, is that through God's mighty and active and living words, that our God, our sovereign God, would work hope in our hearts, that we would be a people of living hope, and that by God's grace and mercy and care, he would cause our hearts to sing with the psalmist of old, that we would sing and rise up and say, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though mountains tremble at its swelling. 
and that we would learn to praise with Peter as he does in verse 3. Their hearts would rise up and say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that we would set our hope fully on the grace that is to come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May God work this in our midst today. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we rejoice this morning in the words of Jesus and his proclamation about you. No one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hands. And we hope this morning, because you've worked hope in our hearts, and we we pray, Father, increase our hope through your words. Cause us to look up and look out. Reassure us with your character and your sure promises. Set before us the risen Christ and give life to our hope. Oh, Father, we, we need you to do this for us because we can't do it ourselves. Give us hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.